Good morning. How are y'all doing today? All right. I do know some are still on their way because of the ferocious hurricane that is lashing Southern California right now. I do know that there were some areas that were hard hit by the storm, but praise God, we're getting little more than our normal rain here, and so uh, we're thankful to God for that. Yeah. But for those of you that may be joining us here in the room for the first time, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we always like to start by saying welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today at Hosanna Christian Fellowship. I am Pastor Nathan, and today we are gonna be introduced to the Antichrist. Dun, dun, dun. Right? Boo. (laughs) You know, we have learned in Revelation, uh, as we've been studying through, that there's lots of symbolic language, lots of symbolism and representation, all meant to help us find the the meaning, to, to interpret and understand the words of this prophecy that has been given to John the Apostle. And the last few chapters of Revelation, as we've been studying through, um, have have been a break in the action, if you will, a a parenthetical, as we've been going through um, the judgments. We started with the seal judgments, and we've been going through the trumpet judgments. And this is actually the second time that, that John has taken a break from the action, if you will, as he's watching it, to then stop and, and look at other things happening meanwhile, or to look back at summaries of what has been taking place. And really, that's what this break has been is to give us a summary overview of events leading up to the seventh trumpet, which introduces the final seven judgments called the bowl judgments. And it's also been a summary, a summary overview of events happening from the midpoint of the tribulation all the way to the end, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Most recently in our studies, we've seen the two witnesses murdered at the midpoint of tribulation, murdered for their proclamation of the gospel, murdered for their witness there in Jerusalem, and left to rot in the streets of Jerusalem while the entire world celebrated and gave gifts at their being murdered. We saw the seventh trumpet itself sounded, announcing the time of the great tribulation, announcing the time leading all the way through the end in this last three and a half years. We saw the great symbolic display in heaven of the woman and the dragon and the child, a symbolic picture, if you will, of Satan's hateful persecution of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people who are God's chosen people out of the earth. We saw then a picture of her giving birth to the Messiah into the world and Satan's attempt at preventing that and all that that means in the big picture of God's plan. And then we saw that Satan, having failing to stop the Messiah from being born, shifted gears in an attempt to wipe out the entire Jewish peoples to prevent God's promise of a coming messianic kingdom. Then we saw his final attempted overthrow, his coup in heaven as he once again tried to conquer heaven itself, and we saw how he was defeated by Michael the archangel and the rest of the angels there in heaven resulting in Satan being cast down to the earth realm, permanently barred from heaven, no longer able to accuse the brethren, but kept from doing so permanently at that point. And then we saw his very furious temper tantrum, 
as then he turns to heavily persecute any and all who believe in Jesus for the last three and a half years of tribulation, knowing that his time to do so is very, very short. So now we arrive at chapter 13 of Revelation, and as we read this chapter, we have to understand a very important point, that just like God uses people to accomplish his purposes here on earth, Satan does likewise, albeit in a twisted, counterfeit type of way. Two of the major primary people he uses are symbolically described for us throughout chapter 13 as seen by John the Apostle. The first one is the Antichrist, which we will start to look at today. The second one being the false prophet, which is the second half of chapter 13. But what we are seeing here, what John is seeing here as he's taking a break from the action of the judgments fallen upon the earth, is we are getting a picture at the devil's devices. Satan's tools, Satan's schemes, the schemes that he uses, and we already know and we looked at last week that Satan is a liar. He is a liar. Jesus said so. He is a liar. He is a deceiver, and during the end times, there will be a mass deception upon the earth like never seen before. But after having failed in his final coup of heaven, he is then going to pull out all the stops. He is going to pull out every trick he has, and he's going to push forth his masterpiece of falsehood in a last-ditch effort to force all of mankind to worship him above God, to worship him instead of God, which was and is his goal from the very beginning. Satan's masterpiece is a charismatic, dynamic, charming, politically savvy, intelligent, well-spoken man who at first seems to be exactly what mankind has needed. A man who has all the answers, a man who comes on the scene and brings peace. Peace in the impossible areas like the Middle East. Peace between the Jews and the Arabs. Nobody's been able to do such a thing. And yet this man will be able to do so and he will be just welcomed and applauded onto the stage by the world. But then at the midpoint of the tribulation, he will seemingly suffer a fatal wound and apparently be brought back to life, resurrected miraculously, in which he will then be put forth as a counterfeit Messiah, a counterfeit Jesus. And instead of Jesus, who instead of being holy and pure and just and perfect, God Almighty as Jesus is, he will instead really be an ugly, wicked, nasty, horrible, evil, beastly monstrosity empowered, enabled by Satan himself to further Satan's schemes. So this morning, we, were gonna, we will see some very specific things about this coming global leader from God's point of view, things that highlight the character of the one who empowers him, so that from today forward, we can continue to live, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11, not ignorant of the devil's schemes. But first, we're going to worship God. Praise his holy name because he's worth it, amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We're so thankful, God, for who you are. Lord, we know that your desire is for all men to be saved. Your desire is that we would all come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. God, you've had a plan from the very beginning to save mankind from himself, to save him from the penalty of the sin he has committed. But Lord, there is a time coming in the future where your plans will be complete. 
Lord, where this age of church grace will be completed and over. And we know, God, that it's during this time the devil is going to just do everything he can to stop you. He is going to do everything he can to, to present himself as the instead of you. God, that's what he's tried to do this whole time, but Lord, we know there's a time coming where he'll be more overt, more public about it, God, and we know that there is a man coming that the Bible teaches us about, known as the Antichrist, who is going to be a part of the schemes and a tool of the devil to deceive the entire world. And Lord, although we don't believe the church will be here during this tribulation time, God, we still are shown and told the future that we would be aware of the devil's schemes even now. Because the devil is a schemer now, he is a deceiver now, he puts forth counterfeit everything now to get us now to be people who disobey God. But Lord, we see these things also that we would be able to warn people of the judgment to come that they would cling to you now for salvation and not wait until the time of your judgment. But Lord, in all of this, you are holy. You are just. You are perfect. You are almighty. You are magnificent. You are love. You are light. God, you are everything. You have always been and always will be. And so, Lord, we want to worship you now. We want to prepare our hearts, Lord, for your teaching and your word, and we just want you to know how much we desperately love you, God. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, I did want to make a slight clarification there. We need three bodies in our, in our student ministry stuff. We need one body for the zero to two, which is the babies, someone to be in our nursery to help with the child care there. We need another body in our pre-K, which is the two to four area. And then we also need uh, someone for our sensory room. And so um, if you're interested or any of that, if you have questions, again, you can see Christiana Bromley down the street or you could contact the church offices and we'll be able to get those questions answered for you. And then I did want to say a big thank you to all of the volunteers who helped us with our outreach on Thursday. Uh, thank you so much. Um, we, we, we do this, this giveaway. It's a community giveaway twice a year just so that we could show the city of Bellflower that we love them, we care about them. And so we set up here during the Street Fest and... I don't know, four or 500 people at least came through, came by our church, got some free goods, and we got the opportunity to share and minister to them and love on them. And so, um, but it's a big effort. And so all of you that helped with that, thank you so much. Uh, it was uh, very fruitful. And um, yeah, just uh, pray for everybody that came through. We want them to know Jesus if they don't. And uh, that's really what it's all about. So, all right, we are in Revelation chapter 13. And read with me in verse 1. It says, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had 10 horns and seven heads. On its horns were 10 crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. So this vision that John is seeing that we have recorded as the book of Revelation, most recently he has been seeing these signs in heaven, these great symbolic signs, these, these displays of the woman and the, the dragon and the child and then the war and all of this stuff. And he's been watching what's taking place in the heavens, but now his vision switches from having heaven in view to now looking back down upon the earth to see what is taking place on the earth. And it tells us there that he saw a beast coming up out of the sea. 
Now again, um, we can't forget that we're still seeing a great sign here, all right? We're still in the midst of a great symbolic display, meaning that the images that we're going to be seeing throughout this chapter are symbolic. They're symbolic of actual realities, and so, um, so we have to interpret things that way. Now when he sees this beast coming up out of the sea, the sea for Jewish people in biblical times was regarded as a wild, untamed, frightening thing. That's how they viewed the ocean. A lot of us today were like, oh, I love the ocean. I love going swimming in the sea, da-da-da, as long as it's not filthy and dirty at the time, right? And, uh, and we love the ocean. But, but in the ancient Jewish mind, the sea was considered this unruly thing that, that seemed to just resist God. And that was really how they, they, they came to understand it in a symbolic sense. Because they were wary of the sea in Jewish writings, and especially throughout the Old Testament, we see that the sea was a figure of evil and chaos. It represented that which seemed to resist God because the sea seemed to be something that tried to resist God, although it didn't successfully do so. Uh, we see this in places like Psalm chapter 74, verse 12, where it says, God, my king, is from ancient times performing saving acts on the earth. You divided the sea with your strength. You smashed the heads of the sea monsters in the water. And so again, that picture that, that the sea is a, is a picture of something standing against God. Psalms chapter 89 says, Lord God of armies, who is strong like you? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging sea when its waves surge. You still them. And then so biblically, the, the sea, and then by extension, the, that which was considered wicked, um, these were two pictures that were often associated with the Gentile nations because the Gentile nations were collectively understood as those who weren't God's people, those who didn't belong to God. And so in Isaiah 57, it says, but the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its water churns up mire and muck. And then again in Isaiah 17, ah, the roar of many peoples. They roar like the roaring of the seas. The raging of the nations, they rage like the rumble of rushing water. And that phrase, the nations, was something biblically that referred to all the Gentile nations. And so we see this picture of, of how the sea was, was identified in, in the Jewish mind. And so when he said, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, symbolically what John is saying here is from this place that is identified with evil and chaos and resisting God, or really from this sea of wicked humanity this place that is full of people who don't belong to God, who aren't gods, from that place rises up a beast. And so the word beast there also ties into this same unruly nature of what he is seeing here because the word beast in the original language is a wild, untamed, savage, or dangerous animal. Right? So this wild, untamed, unruly thing rises up out of the sea of wild, untamed, unruly people and it's called a beast. Now notice John calls this figure a beast and not a dragon. If you remember from the previous chapter, the dragon represented Satan. We were actually told very directly that the dragon was Satan, but this creature, the beast, represents something distinct from Satan. It's not Satan, it's something different. Now, in the book of Revelation, we see that this term beast, this idea of the beast, refers to two entities um, in Revelation. 
Um, on one hand, sometimes the beast refers to a coalition of nations that rises to power during the end times and what we refer to as the one world government, that is referred to as a beast. And then we also see that there is a specific individual, this highly charismatic political leader who leads this one world government, also referred to as the beast. And so let's look at the description of this beast and come to what I believe is the, 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 the symbolic interpretation of what he's referring to here. He says this beast has 10 horns and seven heads. Now again, although this beast is very distinct from the dragon that we saw in chapter 12, this beast is still very closely identified with the dragon. If you remember back in Revelation 12 verse three, it said that another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns, the exact same language. But there's differences that we're gonna get to in a moment, but the idea here is the beast is like the dragon, but isn't the same as the dragon. And so that idea of seven heads, if you remember, the number seven biblically is symbolic of completeness. It's often used to be something symbolic of totality. And then heads, the idea of heads is the, the, the place of authority or the place of intellect. And so the idea of this beast having seven heads is that it's representing something of complete and, and total authority in its scope. And then the horns. Horns, biblically, are often symbolic of strength and power. The idea is that if you saw a bull with two horns, it was a very powerful creature. Well, imagine a creature with 10 horns, right? That much more strong, that much more powerful. And so the idea here is that this beast is a, is a picture of, of um, substantial intellect and strength and power and authority that this beast comes with. Now, the likeness to Satan is one of the reasons why we identify this beast with the Antichrist. Um, the word Antichrist, incidentally, doesn't appear in the book of Revelation anywhere. So for those of you that are gonna be like, the Antichrist isn't in Revelation, um, you're right, it's not, it's elsewhere. Um, actually, the word Antichrist only appears five times in four verses in the entire Bible. But one of the biggest examples, or the greatest examples of this, is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. And he goes on to say, but many Antichrists have already come, and we've talked about that in past studies where there have been precursors of, of what the devil is gonna try and do during tribulation throughout history. There have been people throughout history who have tried to wipe out the Jews. Hitler is an example, a precursor of what the Antichrist is gonna be doing during the end times. But in 1 John, John is referring to a very specific individual. That Antichrist is coming. There is a person, an individual, that is referred to as the Antichrist. And the Antichrist has captured the ima imagination of many people over, over the years and over the decades, you know. But sadly, what most know about the Antichrist in the world today um, probably comes from movies, right? There's, there's just some 40 different Hollywood movies that have had the Antichrist as, as their main protagonist, uh, if you do some research on it. But they're always wrong depictions, all right? They're always Hollywood depictions of the Antichrist, but that's what a lot of people think when they think of Antichrist. Oh, I saw a movie about him once. Well, how about we read the Bible, okay? Um, so, the word Antichrist, what does it mean? Well, well, the first part of that is anti-Christ. That phrase anti, that, 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 that first part of the word means instead of. 
Antichrist, instead of Christ. And so that's who the Antichrist is. He is the instead of Christ. He will look wonderful and charming and he will be successful and influential and you know, to the world he will appear to be the ultimate victor, the ultimate winner. Um, and, and he will want us to think that he is good and benevolent and truthful and, and powerful. He, he, the Antichrist will want us to think that he is everything Jesus is. He is everything Jesus is, but without any of the standards or requirements of Jesus. He's the instead of Jesus. And really, this is part of the devil's schemes. This is an important lesson for us to learn today through this. That one of the devil's schemes is to present instead of Jesus's in, in every way you could think of. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, it says, For Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Right? If Satan showed up in our lives and presented the, the, the foul ugliness of sin to us and said, look at how gross this is and look at how it's going to ruin your life and look at how it's going to destroy your relationships and look, look at, yeah, don't you want it? We'd be like, I don't think so, dude. But he disguises things as something else. He disguises false religions as, oh, that's just an alternative to Christianity, but it gets you to the same place. No, they don't. And so the Antichrist is going to paint himself, and it's really Satan's devices to paint himself and his servants and his temptations all in the most appealing way. To paint them all in their best light, to only focus on the temporary pleasures or the temporary upsides to, to what we would call upsides, if you will, in, in sin. Not that there are any upsides, but we sure think there are. He'll say, look, you, you, you don't need God. You don't need his way. There are other options. You can have and do this instead of what God wants and still be good and holy and righteous. You don't have to follow the Bible. You don't have to listen to him. And, 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 and you could still be a good person. You could still be holy. You could still be right. And sadly, the Bible calls that the world falling under his sway. And as we will see, they'll even worship this false Jesus in adoration. But eventually, as we are learning through Revelation, eventually this facade will drop, the mask will come off, and we will see that as much as Jesus' character and personality is beautiful, we will see that the character and personality of the Antichrist will be ugly and repulsive and evil, that of the devil. As much as Jesus only spoke truth, the Antichrist will only speak lies. And so the beast here that we're seeing in Revelation 13, it's, it's a picture of his character. It's a picture of the nature of this leader. Now, although he was commonly referred to as the Antichrist, Scripture gives many other names and titles for this individual. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, he's referred to as the little horn, and we'll talk about that in a moment. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, he's called the ruthless king. In Daniel 9, 26, he's called the coming ruler. In Daniel eleven thirty six through 45, he's the king who will do whatever he wants and magnify himself above all. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, he's called the man of lawlessness and the man doomed to destruction. 
And he is the one that the devil is going to raise up who ends up leading and heading this one world government that is to come in the tribulation times. And you know, that whole concept, the talk of globalism, has been all over the news for a while now. And there's constantly these groups that talk about we need to globalize our economy. We need to globalize our currency. We need to globalize our government, right? It's, it's people been talking about it for a long time. So it's not something that's like, oh, that's just crazy talk. It's like, no, that's, that's the direction we're going. Now we get to verse two. Oh, sorry, no, we're not in verse two yet. So we, we have this individual who's gonna lead and head this government, and then it tells us there in Revelation 13 that on these 10 horns, sit 10 crowns, okay? Now this is another detail that differentiates the beast from the dragon, please pay attention. Back in chapter 12 of Revelation, it said that the dragon had seven heads, and on those seven heads were seven crowns. But here, there's 10 horns, and on the 10 horns are 10 crowns, so there's a difference between the beast and the dragon. Now whereas the dragon had these seven crowns, um, on the seven heads, representing again that symbolic picture of seven, his complete authority and the scope of his schemes, and the real complete authority that Satan's going to exercise on earth during this time with the beast, since the um, crowns are sitting on the horns, the symbolic picture of strength, and not the heads, the picture of authority and intellect, the picture here of this beast is that he is going to have um, complete strength when it comes to the exercising of his rulership on the earth. And so this idea of these ten crowns on the ten horns and the following descriptions that we get in, the last, or in verse 2 link this beast to a vision that the prophet Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7 and really give us some insight into these crowns and horns and what it means in light of prophecy. So verse 2 of Revelation 13. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now you'll notice there, and we've pointed this out a few times in Revelation, that word like. Did you see that? It was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And so, again, this super weird, strange description, this weird-looking beast that John is seeing here, but it's symbolic. It's all symbolic of realities, and so what John is seeing here is a, is a vision very similar to the vision that Daniel was given in Daniel chapter 7. And so we're going to be jumping through verses here to try and understand what the symbolism means, so um, buckle up, right? hang on, and uh, take notes if you need to, okay? Now, let's go to Daniel chapter 7. If you want to turn there or open it up on your app, we're going to look at some issues of Daniel 7 and how they tie here to Revelation in helping us identify who this beast is. Now, if you haven't noticed, Daniel is a wonderful book to study in parallel with Revelation, all right? So if you're studying Revelation along with us, I encourage you to crack open the book of Daniel and study that alongside. You'll be real blessed with that. But in Daniel chapter 7, God gave Daniel a vision of four huge beasts that came up out of the sea. And these four beasts were a lion, a bear, a leopard, which is what we just saw in Revelation, and then something else, something indescribable, something monstrous. And, and what we are told in Daniel, because an angel did come to Daniel and say, hey Daniel, let me uh, interpret what these weird visions are for you, okay? Because Daniel was like, oh, it's kind of freaky. What does it mean? And God's like, I'll tell you. So 
We get the benefit of getting those interpretations. In Daniel, we read that these four beasts that he saw were, were, were a succession of kingdoms, that these four beasts represented world-governing empires that would come upon the earth from Daniel's time all the way through the end of history. And we get this interpretation in Daniel 7, verses 15 through 28. I'm not going to read it all, but that is where Daniel is given the interpretation of the vision that he saw here in these four beasts. But specifically what he is told there in verse 7 of Daniel, verse 17 of Daniel 7, he is told that those four individual beasts are four kings who will rise from the earth. Now the word kings there is also by extension kingdoms. So it's kings and their kingdoms that rise from the earth. And so he saw a lion and it represented a kingdom. Now for you history buffs, during Daniel's time he was there in the Babylonian Empire and the Babylonian Empire was known to be very fierce and very ferocious and had authority like a lion, right? But the kingdom that came after the Babylonian Empire was the Medo-Persian Empire, which was represented by the bear. Now you think of a bear, you think of a large, kind of slow-moving, lumbering, but incredibly powerful, um, a powerful creature with just slow, crushing power. And that was actually characteristic of the Medo-Persian Empire. After the Medo-Persian Empire came Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, which was represented by the leopard. And when you think of a leopard, you think of a very quick and agile creature. And that's what Alexander the Great was known for. He had an army that swept the whole earth in no time. As the story is told, after he conquered the final kingdom, it says that Alexander the Great cried because there were no other kingdoms to conquer. And then Daniel saw this fourth horrific, indescribable, terrifying, dominating, destructive beast that was to come. And we understand that that is representative of the Roman Empire, which came after the Greek Empire. So what John now is seeing in Revelation 13 is he's seeing a, um, one beast that has characteristics of all of these beasts, but he sees the beasts in reverse order. He sees the leopard, and then he sees the bear, and then he sees the lion. But they're all this amalgamation in one creature. And so the picture is, is that the characteristics of all these great world empires are going to come with one empire that has the characteristics of all of them. That there will be a coming empire on the earth that is swift and agile and strong and powerful and fierce and ferocious. This is what John is seeing in Revelation with this beast rising up out of the sea of humanity. So now let's, now let's tie in the ten horns and the ten crowns. So back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, he is told that the fourth beast that he saw, right? He saw the lion, he saw the bear, he saw the leopard, and then he sees this fourth beast. He is told that that fourth beast had ten horns. And again, Daniel was pretty distressed over this really strange vision he's seeing. As a matter of fact, it says he was terrified there. And then in verse 19, it says that Daniel, he, he says, I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast and, and this horn situation. Like, I wanted to be really clear about this. This is really strange. And so, in verse 23 of Daniel 7, he's given the interpretation. An angel speaks to him and says, this is what the angel said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down, and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. 
So the ten horns and the ten crowns that we see in Revelation that this beast had are ten kingdoms, ten nations and their rulers, and that's where we get the concept that in the end times there is going to be a coalition. There are going to be ten different nations that rise up and form one world government, one powerful government that will then trample the earth, as it says, and crush it. Now, some people refer to this final world kingdom, this one world government that's going to come on the earth during the tribulation period, they refer to it as the revived Roman Empire. And there's reasons for that. One of those reasons comes from Daniel chapter 2, all right? We've referenced this in a past study, but in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a huge statue that then Daniel interpreted for him. And in this dream, it was a statue that had a head of gold, and then it had chest and arms of silver, stomach and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then its feet were a mixture of iron, iron and clay with ten toes. And in that vision, Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone come from heaven and strike this statue at its feet, to strike the feet, that iron and clay with the ten toes, and it then destroyed the entire statue, and then that stone from heaven became a, a, a big mountain. And so Daniel then interprets this whole dream for him and says, look, that statue is a picture of the coming kingdoms upon the earth starting with Babylonian, Nebuchadnezzar's empire. And so he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Your empire, the Babylonian empire, is the head of gold. But then after that will come an empire that's slightly less powerful than you. Silver instead of gold, and that was the Medo-Persian empire. And then after that will come another empire that's slightly less powerful, and that would be the Greek empire. And then after that would come another empire that would be as strong as iron, right? the legs of iron, and that was the Roman Empire. So in his vision, we see three kingdoms that are each succeeded by a fourth. That's what Daniel saw in chapter two. That's what he saw in chapter seven, where he saw the lion kingdom, and then it was supplanted by a bear kingdom, and then a leopard kingdom, and then this fourth kingdom, right? So that all lines up with Daniel chapter seven, three beasts, then a fourth. But here's the problem. In Daniel chapter 7, the fourth beast in his vision then conquers, um, uh, conquers the world and then is conquered by, and in the interpretation, that final kingdom is conquered by the Messiah who then sets up his messianic kingdom and rules forever. The Roman Empire, though, if that's the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire fell a long time ago. And I think you and I agree that we don't see a messianic kingdom ruling the earth today, do we? Well, was Daniel wrong? Or did he mess up the vision? <laughs> well, no. Because if you go back to Daniel 2, what we saw was head of gold, Babylonian Empire, chest of silver, Medo-Persian Empire, the abdomen um, of bronze, that was the Greek Empire. Then you had the legs of iron, the Roman Empire. But guess what came after that? The feet that were a mixture of iron and clay with ten toes. And so this, what we're seeing here, is something, a kingdom that comes later after the Roman Empire. And remember, each one of these represent empires that ruled the entire planet. They ruled the entire planet. And since the Roman Empire, we haven't really had any empire or kingdom on the earth that ruled the entire planet quite like these other empires did but one will be coming in the future. And that's why people call it a revived Roman Empire. 
because it's going to be Roman-esque. It's going to be iron, but it's going to be mixed with clay. So it's going to have elements of what the Roman Empire was, but it's going to be slightly different, but it's still going to have the characteristics that made the Roman Empire so gruesome. And so that ties Daniel's vision of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 back to Revelation chapter 13. Did you follow that? Okay, it's a lot of bouncing around and stuff, but I hope you see the picture here. Um, So the idea is that although the Roman Empire, the first Roman Empire fell, and incidentally the Roman Empire wasn't conquered like the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, or the Greek Empire, it just simply collapsed under its own weight, right? If you understand history, the Roman Empire just got so big and so corrupt that it just collapsed, right? So it wasn't actually conquered or destroyed, it just fell apart. And so people didn't think that that Roman Empire or what that Roman Empire represented is going to come back, resume in some way in the future, and be like the original but slightly different with the same uh, similar characteristics. But as Daniel saw in the vision of the statue that that final world empire will ultimately be conquered by Jesus Christ. The stone from heaven will come and destroy all of it, and then we know at the end of tribulation, he will set up his messianic kingdom and rule forevermore. So it all ties together. All of that to say this. In that context, the beast that we're looking at here in Revelation 13 refers to this one world government that has characteristics of all the previous world empires. But this government will be led and headed by a singular individual. Let's go back to the horns. Right. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first ten horns were up, or three of the first ten were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn, this little horn that rises up amongst the ten, were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. Move forward to Daniel 7.20. Daniel says, I also wanted to know about the ten horns on the head of the fourth beast and about the other horn that came up before which three of the original ten fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly that looked bigger than the others. So in Daniel 7.24, he gets the interpretation about this little horn. The angel says the ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this final kingdom And then another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three of the kings. So when we put all this together, what we see is that during the tribulation time, there will be ten leaders, ten kings of ten nations that that will form a coalition. But amongst that group will rise up another leader, another king who is greater, and he will dispose of three of the ten Don't know for sure what that means, possibly taking over three of these nations that are part of this coalition, but then he will rise up and end up leading the entire coalition by himself. And this horn, incidentally, had the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. That word arrogantly means self-exalting. So when we go, who's the little horn in Daniel? Well, that ties us back to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. That is describing for us the man of lawlessness. It's describing for us this man doomed to destruction, and it says he, not it, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. 
and we've referenced that a number of times as Jesus described this, this uh, event in Matthew 24 called the abomination of desolation where this man will then enter God's temple and sit on the throne in God's temple and say, I'm God, worship me, as he is filled and inspired and, and, and just motivated by Satan himself. And so this, this opposing, this standing against God this blasphemous stance, we see this back in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, because it said that on the seven heads were blasphemous names. And so again, seven heads covered in blasphemous names is just an idea of the total and complete blasphemy that this man has and brings against God. So, the beast, in my interpretation here, what I see here is he both represents this final worldwide totalitarian government, it both represents that and the one who leads it. That's what I see here in Revelation. Incidentally, this shouldn't be something difficult for us to accept, all right, that something could represent two things simultaneously, um, specifically when it comes to kingdoms and leaders, because any empire, any major world power is often associated um, are identified with or represented by its leader. That's a common thing. When you think of Adolf Hitler, what do you think of? Nazis, Nazi Germany. When you think of Nazi Germany, what do you think of? Adolf Hitler. So there's an identification between the, the person and the kingdom, the person ruling in the kingdom they rule. The two are virtually the same in that idea. And so I don't think it's difficult for us to see this beast here both representing the government, the worldwide government, and the one who leads it. However, I do see that this beast best reflects an individual first um, for a lot of reasons. One, in verse four, it says that the people of earth, earth worship the beast. And people don't typically worship empires and governments nor do they worship successions of governments over history. They worship people. Um, and that's common throughout history that you'll see people come to worship rulers of kingdoms. Another reason is that later on in chapter 13, there's an image of the beast that is set up and the whole world is commanded by the false prophet to worship it. And again, that makes more sense if, if this image is of a person rather than a government, right? Um, in Revelation chapter 13, 18, I think this is one of the most powerful reasons that this is primarily represents the person who also represents the government, is uh, Revelation 13, 18. It says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, because it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. And so the beast, we're told, has a name expressed by a particular number, and it says it's the number of a person. Additionally, the beast is ultimately damned and cast into the lake of fire where he will continue to suffer. We'll read about that later in Revelation, but systems and governments are not cast into the lake of fire. People are. Um, so I do believe that this beast first represents an individual, represents a man, represents this coming world ruler, the Antichrist, who is going to come and exalt himself above all. But by extension, it also represents the oppressive, destructive, terrifying, powerful world kingdom that he will be head of. Good? All right. <laughs> A lot of information here. All right, verse 2. We're moving ahead. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. 
So it tells us, again, there's a differentiation between the dragon and the beast, and it tells us where the beast got his power, the source of his success, the source of, of, of all that he's able to do is Satan. So it's Satan expressing his desires, expressing his will, expressing his authority through this man, through this man. So Satan is working through the Antichrist on the earth to, to gain control of everything, right? Now, you remember back in Revelation 12, we talk about the beast had seven heads and seven crowns, seven being symbolic of completeness. And so Satan is, is working to have complete and total authority. Here's an interesting detail. Although the dragon had seven crowns on his seven heads, the Antichrist, it said, had ten crowns on ten horns. Well, the Antichrist is empowered by Satan. And as we saw in Daniel, the Antichrist is the one who rises up among the ten horns and the ten crowns, Right? And then it said that he subdued or disposed of three of those tens, and then ends up three of those ten, and ends up leading the entire world coalition, coalition as Satan's representative. Well, ten minus three is what? Seven. So Satan ends up in total control either way, right? It's just an interesting little picture of Satan's working in schemes. And so, verse three: one of the heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. So it wasn't just political savvy and charisma and intellect um, that this man had, the Antichrist, that, that, that solidified his ultimate control over the earth. It just told us that the dragon, the, the Satan himself, is the one who gave him authority and power. But we have this detail here, which is very interesting, right? John sees on this beast, one of the heads of this beast and that's a whole nother discussion of which head it is, and we don't have time to get into that, but, but one of the heads looks to have a fatal mortal wound. That word fatal wound there, it, it, it means a deadly life-terminating injury involving a cut or a break in the skin. That's what that word means in the original language. So John sees that one of the heads of this beast has this, this life-terminating wound, but then he says the fatal wound was healed. And what is the result? The whole world was amazed and followed the beast. What is this speaking of? Well, there's a few prominent ideas here, and I'll share all of them with you. The first idea of what this is referring to or what this is symbolic of is the idea that the Antichrist, right around the midpoint of tribulation, is killed in some fashion. Some think that due to the language of the fatal wound that he was assassinated, that he took a bullet wound to the head is how some interpret this. But, but regardless of the type of wound that the Antichrist actually died, but then he was resurrected. He came back to life. And people who, who, who see that as the interpretation of this point to the fact that it was a fatal wound, right? It was a life-terminating wound that was then healed. Now, the challenges to this that people have is like, well, if the Antichrist did die and he was resurrected, who brought him back to life? Did the devil bring him back to life? Satan doesn't have that power. Satan does not have the power to resurrect anybody. I mean, if he did have the power to resurrect evil leaders, why didn't he resurrect Hitler? Why didn't he resurrect Caesar? Why didn't he resurrect who knows, right? So they go, Satan doesn't have that power. And then people go, well, um, God allowed Satan to have the power to resurrect the Antichrist this one time, or they say God himself resurrected the Antichrist because he was just simply reinforcing mankind's desire to not believe in God. 
And we saw something similar to this in Pharaoh, right? Where it tells us in scripture that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Like Pharaoh refused to believe in God. And so the language there implies that God said, okay, if you don't want to believe in me, I'm going to make sure that you get what you want and you can't believe in me. That's again another Bible study. But that idea that, that God gave Satan the power or allowed him the power to resurrect or God himself resurrected the Antichrist, we see both of these possibilities in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, and this is what it says there. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders, serving the lie. And so people go, see, Satan was able to work the miracle of resurrecting the Antichrist. And then verse 10, it says, with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. So they look at that and they go, God allowed Satan to work this miracle for the point of serving the lie, his deception upon mankind. Others go, why would God do that, right? But if you read along in verse 11, it says, for this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they might believe the lie, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. And so people read that verse and go, God resurrected the Antichrist to then enforce those who didn't want to believe. So that's one interpretation of what Revelation 13.3 is. The Antichrist really died, and there was a real resurrection. The second interpretation is that since Satan can't resurrect, and some that go, then God absolutely wouldn't resurrect, that this resurrection is a fake. It's a staged resurrection of the Antichrist. Um, those that, that support that view point to the word appeared there. Do you see in Revelation 13.3, it says one of the heads appeared to be fatally wounded. And so they interpret that word as that he didn't really die, it just looked like he did. And since Satan is a deceiver and a liar, and, and you know it's a ruse that he pulls over mankind, but it's a ruse that works, and it fits kind of the MO of Satan. Or people go that the man, the Antichrist, did indeed die, but then Satan possessed his body, and thus it looked like the Antichrist was resurrected. But the Antichrist was actually really dead. It was just Satan possessing him. Um, and that fits MO2, because if you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, it says the Antichrist sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. And that's Satan speaking Challenge with that is the beast, or the Antichrist, according to Revelation, he doesn't actually perish until the second coming, which is at the end of tribulation. Revelation 19 says that the beast representing the Antichrist was thrown alive into the lake of fire. And then after that, in Revelation chapter 20, you have Satan, who is the dragon bound in the abyss for a thousand years, not in the lake of fire at that point, and so people go, hmm, not sure. Then there's a third interpretation of this, which is people who want to super symbolize the whole thing. And that interpretation says that the beast we're looking at in Revelation 13 is not the Antichrist at all. He only and solely represents an empire. And so he is the, this head that is killed and brought back to life. It's the idea that the Roman Empire died, and now the Roman Empire has come back to life during the tribulation period. And so this comes from the idea that the seven heads represent seven major world empires in history, Right, you go back, you got Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and the Medo-Persian and the Greek and the Roman Empire, that's six. And then you have what they call as the revived Roman Empire, the seventh during this time. But even in that, some people say so that this Antichrist, though, this ruler that we can't you know, refute, he is seen in scripture, this ruler of this empire 
It's not a person who actually died and came back to life, but he's going to be presented to the world as a reincarnated Caesar or a reincarnated world leader who was once dead. But look, he's alive again. He's reincarnated. So that's the third idea. So let's explore all three in detail. No, it's 11.14. And uh, <laughs> so... Um, we don't have time to explore all the pros and cons of each of these. Um, for now, I will say this, that I don't have a definitive stance. Um, I'm not 100% sure which uh, of those interpretations are exactly it, although I think one or two are most likely. And um, because the events that, that are seen there, it says they're, they're, the world is amazed. They're, they're presented as a miraculous event that the world is like, whoa. And then what we're going to see in later verses is that not only did they follow the beast, but they end up worshiping him. What does that tell us? That, that something is going to happen that causes this atheistic, agnostic, there is no God, there is no religion, get rid of it world, to suddenly become super spiritual and worship this beast. And I think that can only happen if something that is or at least appears miraculous happens before them. And so that's what I think this is pointing to is that something is going to happen or presents itself as a miracle. And, and that follows Satan's MO, right? We know that Satan loves to counterfeit anything that God does. We know that Satan does that. That's one of his aspects. And so the presentation of the Antichrist is simply him trying to counterfeit Jesus, right? The Antichrist is the instead of Jesus. You don't need Jesus, but here's a guy that looks just like him, so you get everything you want without uh, any of the obligations. And it's right in line with his schemes. It would be right in line with Satan's schemes, in, in my understanding, to try and then pass off a counterfeit resurrection too, Right? If he's trying to present a counterfeit Jesus, well, what better way to do that than to present a counterfeit resurrection? All to get people to ultimately worship him as God instead of Jesus. And this ties into, especially when you look at the idea of Satan is, is putting forth a counterfeit trinity here. See, we understand that we have God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and they're three distinct persons, but they are one God together, right? And Satan's like, oh, I could do that. And so Satan is the dragon in the place of the father, and he puts forward the Antichrist instead of Jesus. And then we're going to see later presents the false prophet instead of the Holy Spirit. So, I hope to get through 10 verses today, and we made it through three. Okay? Progress. Progress. But next time, we will continue to look at the beast, the beast from the sea, the Antichrist and the world government that he represents and all of his efforts during the Great Tribulation, specifically as he goes out to enforce worship of himself and then aggressively, aggressively persecute those that would dare believe in Jesus during his apparent worldwide reign um, of terror, his control over everything. And then we're also gonna see the response to the world of his presence and then we're going to see a, a big warning for those who think that, oh, I'm just going to wait until tribulation to believe in Jesus. But that's next week. Today, we're going to close and uh, worship God. We're so grateful to the Lord for revealing the future to us that we would be prepared, that we would be armed with the knowledge to warn people. But I think one of the biggest things to get out of this today is just an understanding, whether it's a reminder or a revelation to you today of the schemes of the devil. 
The devil loves to counterfeit what God does, present it as something that God is, and try and trick you, deceive you into following it. And that's why we're called to be people who study the word of God because we need to study it so we know when something is being presented as counterfeit and we can say, that doesn't sound right, that's false. When people are coming into our lives and saying, oh no, I'm a Christian too, I represent God, but hey, this is, this is what the Bible really says. We need to, to know the schemes of the devil to recognize those things so we could go, no, that's, that's not right, that's counterfeit. The devil's good at what he does, people. He is really good at it. And there are thousands and millions worldwide that are deceived into false religions, deceived to follow false gods. And there are people who genuinely think, I have salvation in this false thing. We know the truth. We know the truth. We have prophecy. We have archaeology. We have all this stuff that backs up what the word says to, to, to present it as it is, it is true. And we are called to go out and share this message with people as much as we can. To warn them about the judgment to come, that they too would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you, Lord, for what you're giving us. Lord, I pray, God, that we would, we, we would see what it is you were communicating to John as you gave him this, this, this prophecy, this revelation, Lord, this vision. Lord, that we would step back and, and, and see Satan for the beast that he is, or the dragon that he is, the, the, the destructive, horrible force that he is, Lord, and then everything he does and everything he uses, Lord, that we would see the ugliness of it, God. As we are seeing here, this, this world leader he's going to bring on the stage presented as this, as this horrific beast and the control and the influence that he is going to try and exert and actually successfully exert for a time over the earth, Lord. It is this horrible monster. And Lord, we wouldn't ever, ever forget the evil that our enemy is, the wickedness that our enemy is. That we would ever forget his schemes and his goals and his desires to trick us, to fool us, that, Lord, we wouldn't get caught up in lies that, that people who have already been deceived and led astray, well, well, they're just believing what they want. But, Lord, we would say, no, we, we, we need to share truth with them lovingly, compassionately, Lord. But that, God, we would have the heart for the loss that you have as you look upon this earth and you see how many people are led into falsehoods by the enemy, God, that they're, that they're straight up deceived, Lord. We know it breaks your heart, God, that our heart would break too. And that, God, we would be people that, that intentionally shine the light of the gospel in this time now while we can, Lord. We would shine the light of truth and hope that, God, we would present you in our actions and our behavior and our words and everything, God, that people would be drawn to the truth of who you are and drawn towards salvation. Because, Lord, without you it is judgment. And we know that. But, God, even in that, we praise you. We know your judgments are true, are just. And we thank you, God, that we are saved from the judgment to come. We praise you for that. And we praise you, Lord, for the opportunity to be used of you in this world today. That, God, you choose to work through us, your people, to share the truth of who you are with a lost and dying world. Help us to do that more. Help us to do that faithfully. Help us to do that diligently and boldly and confidently. 
God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's worship.